Imagine you're walking on a path and it suddenly ends by splitting in two. There is one path to the right, the other to the left. The destination at the end of one of the paths is life, the other is death. The Didache opens by presenting the listener with this dichotomy. It says, there are two ways, one of life and one of death, and great is the difference between them. The document begins by talking about the way of life first. Above all else, it first emphasizes the two commandments of Jesus, to love God and love neighbor. Everything listed after these two commands represent how one could practically accomplish such a task. This way of life includes commandments like, pray for your enemies, and if someone takes your cloak, give him your coat also. In addition to things we must do, there are also things we must not do, such as murder, adultery, abortion, or theft. After the way of life, the Didache talks about the way of death and how such a path is filled with promiscuity, murder, addiction, hypocrisy, and arrogance. After the practical guidance of the two ways instruction, the Didache begins speaking topically. It speaks about baptism and how it should be in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by immersion. It mentions how Christians should fast on Wednesday and Friday to separate themselves from the unbelieving Jewish community. It talks about Eucharistic practice, how to test a prophet to see whether he is true, and rules concerning hospitality. The Didache states how Christians worship together on Sunday. It gives guidance on what kind of men should be bishops and deacons. And it ends with a call to be watchful, because we do not know the hour in which the Lord comes. Gary and Alvin will now discuss the historical context and background of this document. Didache. So how do you want to do this? Um, figured we just do the textual criticism part first. Go through right. the context, background, okay. the dating. and Oh boy, and then, the dating. And then yeah. go through uh, our actual commentary on the document. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> for context, I have, according to Karen King, it's most appropriate to speak of early Christianities emerging from first century Judaisms. And in her system, Jewish Christianity might refer to one of eight approaches or practices rather than a monolithic whole. And in this sense, the Didache would have helped define the practice of one of many streams of early Christianity. These emerging Jewish Christian communities were defining themselves over and against the unbelieving synagogue in the early decades. Apostles and prophets were traveling. Uh, they were itinerant preachers of the gospel and wandered from community to community, passing down oral tradition. They would tell the stories of Jesus and rely on the hospitality of those they stayed with to meet their daily needs. So that's what I have for like the kind of overarching context of the time period. Right. Uh, I think it's really important that you point uh, that you bring out the Christianities and Judaisms. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that's a point of contention within scholarship, especially uh, after E.P. Sanders um, and his work on what developed into the new perspective on Paul mm -hmm. 
and especially yeah. with uh, the Nag Hammadi's scriptures and uh, all the work on the Gnostic Gospels. Um, and to you know, as, as Orthodox, uh, we would say that you know all of those that use those Gnostic scriptures were already by default heretics. But at the same time, you see different communities even within the New Testament already emerging. Uh, you have what you mentioned uh, with the Jewish Christians uh, struggling uh, with the incorporation of the, the Gentiles within the early Jesus communities, which is something that Paul addressed in both Galatians and Romans. Uh, you see a little bit of the differing communities on how to negotiate, uh, how to live as uh, Jesus people within Rome uh, and negotiating Christ's rule with living in the empire. So what do you do with food sacrifice to idols. You know, there was one group who thought it was okay. There was another group who thought not okay. Mm -hmm. Then you have this Didache group who were more than likely Jewish Christians. Um, yep. And they were incorporating a lot of Torah within their teachings. As a background, I have, prior to 1883, the text was virtually unknown for an unknown amount of time. Um, mm -hmm. It was rediscovered by Archbishop Branios in the Monastery of the Holy Sepulchre in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. um, the manuscript itself is held within the Greek Orthodox Library in Jerusalem and has been given the number H54. Why? I don't know. <laughs> um, that particular manuscript is dated to June 11th, 1056, only two years after the Great Schism. That's interesting. Um, it's written in Greek. It is the only known complete manuscript of the Didache, though other fragments exist. Also, variants in readings exist between di different copies. Mm -hmm. uh, Coptic and Ethiopic versions can be dated to the 4th century and might preserve an earlier tradition. Right. Um, some scholars like uh, the Lutheran theologian Adolf von Harnack have oh, argued right. that the Didache was composed in Egypt, but other scholars like um, the Anglican priest Jonathan Draper now argue for Syria as a general location. Others suggest Antioch specifically. So that was like the, the background I had there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would probably argue for Syria-Palestine, uh, based on the evidence that I've read, though I can definitely see why Harnack would have opted for the Egyptian option, because uh, I mentioned this in the paper, uh, there was a long tradition of using the Didache as a catechetical text. So it obviously had some type of stronghold there in terms of useful for teaching. Not that it wasn't used in other places, but it's interesting that uh, you had like Athanasius uh, a few centuries later. You had um, I think it was Cyril, someone else uh, mentioned it, and then even centuries after that, um, you still found traces of it within Egyptian texts. There was like an Egyptian manuscript that in included parts of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so theories on dating, mm -hmm. uh, despite the lack of hard evidence for dating, most scholars now date the original composition to the middle or late first century. The Didache's strong connections to Jewish tradition and its depiction of a budding church suggested an early date to some scholars. 
the perceived reliance on the Gospel of Matthew led others to settle on the late 1st century to mid-2nd century. However, I wanted to give the listeners some historical background on what this text went through during just the past century when it comes to scholarly opinions. So, in 1920, a guy named J.A. Robinson argued that the Didache was a 3rd century creation that relied on the Epistle of Barnabas because of the two-ways material. And those holding to this theory even suggested it was a Montanist text. Um, This led to the Didache falling out of popularity until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948. Four years after that discovery, in 1952, a Canadian philosopher, Jean-Paul Houdet, you French speakers out there, how'd I do? (laughs) Let me know in the comments. Like and subscribe. (laughs) Anyways, John Paul wrote an essay establishing the Didache as an in, as independent from the Epistle of Barnabas, suggesting instead that the two documents relied on a common two-way source. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that that would be the more obvious conclusion from the start, but... Um, right, well, you know um, how scholarship goes. Yeah. John Paul uh, reclaimed an early pre-70 AD apostolic authorship, uh, which he thought was then likely edited twice, um... With the Didache's dependence on Barnabas ruled out, others like Coster, Rodorf, Draper, um, yep. they began evaluating the Didache's relationship instead to the Gospel of Matthew. And this has been where the studies have been since like the 90s. Um, Rodorf makes the case against the Didache's dependence on Matthew, opening the possibility of an even earlier composition date. Uh, Draper suggests that the Didache and Matthew evolved together in the same community, the Didache as the manual of discipline of, of the community, and uh, Matthew as a record of the Jesus tradition. Nieder Wimmer supposes a primary editor at the turn of the century compiling and editing earlier texts. Uh, since the document still speaks to a developing church, it cannot be the second century. Mm-hmm. Um, Milovec proposes an early date between 50 and 70 AD, while Varner settles on a late 1st century date, allowing for the possibility that the writer was familiar with the Gospel of Matthew. Nearly all current articles and commentaries on the Didache argue for a composition date somewhere between 50 and 90 AD, or 50 and 100. So like the Didache functioning as oral tradition. Within the Didache, numerous words, phrases, and passages point to an understanding of the document as an oral catechism or like a mentorship between Jewish Christian clergy and Gentile catechumen. Whenever the Didache cites material from the Old Testament or refers to the gospel traditions, the emphasis is on what has been said rather than what has been written. The oral tradition was eventually written down into the document that would become known as the Didache, but according to James Dunn, the high illiteracy level of the first century working class requires an approach to the Didache that acknowledges an oral culture, not a written culture, like we were saying. Alolan expounds upon this line of thinking when he says, Note that the teaching is not something you read, but something to which you listen. There's always a real community of a teacher speaking and disciples listening. Moreover, it should remind us not to push our assumptions about reading, 
which is essentially a private activity, he says, back into this period. The Didache was a document that was memorized and heard, and also had its sounds recorded on papyrus for safekeeping. So this is like James Dunn and um, Alolan. Right. Really, I think they're on to they're on to something with this. Right. Have you read James Dunn's book, uh, A New Perspective on Jesus? Uh, what the quest for the historical Jesus missed. I think that's what the title of the book is. Mm-mm, no. I think that's a book I would recommend basically to everybody, conservative, liberal, or whatever. Dunn uh, has, it's not necessarily a critique, it's more of like a truism that we're children of Gutenberg, uh, that we're children of the printing press. Like what you mentioned earlier, printing press has kind of changed our epistemology. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to account for that epistemological shift when we do uh, these studies on uh, within antiquity. Uh, because their modus operandi within understanding and influencing tradition and living within a tradition is just fundamentally different than yep. we, how we are in the world. So I, I definitely think there is an imaginative aspect that is missing from some historical scholarship that, and you really kind of see this within like 18th, 19th century historical critical uh, source criticism, criticism stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, Everything for them had to be a textual evidence or a textual source uh, for the most part. You don't really see that nuance until a little bit later into more oral sources. Right. And I think that aspect is just so important. But it, it, so to a lot of people, it's very scary because there are just so many variables involved with oral traditions. Yeah, and we we have some oral traditions that still exist today that we just kind of mm-hmm. uh, forget about, like you know, like ring right. around ring around the rosy. Yeah, like that's not written down somewhere. Like we don't get that from a book, or like the whole idea of not wearing white to a wedding. Right. There's no like wedding etiquette book that we get that from. Right. It's just something that that spreads word of mouth. You know. Yeah. My favorite oral tradition that survives within evangelicalism. And this isn't a slight against evangelicalism. I just think it's interesting that it survives as an oral tradition is a quiet time. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like everyone kind of talks about it. Where does it really come from? Obviously it's not in the Bible, you know, Yeah. (laughs) Um, but it survives as like this, you know, ongoing thing that people encourage you to have, which is funny. Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm sure scholarship is going to change. I've mentioned to you before, like, I think scholarship is just going to change so rapidly. The more people have this intentional perspective of an oral culture in mind. Yeah. Because it's, we've relied so heavily on this post Gutenberg mentality. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I see that kind of changing now. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. So I wanted to get into this two ways motif. The two ways motif is really interesting because I would say the overall structure of it comes from Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 11.29, which talks about the difference between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. You know, Mount Gerizim is of blessings and Mount Ebal is of curses. So Deuteronomy 30 further expresses a two-way blessing-curse dichotomy to express eschatological blessing and punishment. The purpose of the ways is to tell what lies at the end of each path reward, or punishment. The two-ways device was widespread in the early Mediterranean world, 
the use of this metaphor is common in classical antiquity. For example, that we mentioned the Epistle of Barnabas also uses it, but evidence is also found in Acts 9, 1 and 2, that the first Christians were identifying themselves as people of the way, uh, meaning that they were proclaiming to the Jewish world that they were on the way of life. In other words, they are Mount Gerizim people. Yeah, and uh, I've seen some scholarship on this, and it's obviously another piece of evidence for the, the Didache as a, a Jewish text as well, uh, because there is that strong Jewish influence. I mean, it's, it's a very much a strong theme within the text. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also interesting because you don't see it as explicit within the New Testament text. So you have uh, a preservation of a tradition of Judaism that wasn't necessarily preserved within the New Testament. Um, so it's something that kind of supplements the New Testament in terms of uh, its Jewish heritage, or, or it supplements Christianity in its Jewish heritage as a text. Mm. It's fascinating, you know, to have a non-canonical text uh, supplement a tradition that uh, that large in such a way. Because I believe there's also uh, traces of the two ways in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, I mean, and so you have, you know, both the Qumran community and the uh, Didache community preserving a tradition that was, or at least within the Didache, was complementary to Christianity, uh, or at least how, that's how that Jewish the Jewish Christians saw it. Um, but we don't necessarily see that within the New Testament. Mm, yeah, I mean, as far as, like, patristic references go, both Eusebius and St. Athanasius include the Didache by name. Um, it isn't in their lists of canonical writings, but in additional lists of recommended reading for catechumen. In his exposition on the Psalms, you mentioned this in your paper, uh, St. Augustine cites mm-hmm. the section about alms sweating in the hands on four separate occasions, once explicitly uh, referring to it as scripture. And this is in his comments on Psalm 146, and he writes, in another place, scripture says, you know, let alms sweat in your hand. Which, I find that interesting too, because right in the actual document, in, in the Didache, it says, it has been said. Right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't it, doesn't it clarify that, well, it makes it seem that the Didache yeah. is actually quoting an oral tradition. Yeah, the way Augustine incorporates the Didache within his commentary on the Psalms, I believe that's Psalm 1, 146. Six? Yeah. The way Augustine incorporates the Psalm is quite fascinating because he incorporates uh, an abbreviated uh, version of uh, the text he's commenting on, which is a passage from Luke, um, which was also included in the Didache, but mm. then, then he qualifies it with scripture yeah. um, in, in the Latin. Uh, so it, it's really interesting. Uh, you have this use of a non-canonical text interpreting canonical text. Yep. And I think with, with the question there, that's a pretty interesting move to make. But I also wonder how conscious he was of that move or whether he was just doing it from memory. Now, going back to the, the oral culture thing, mm-hmm. um, like I don't think, I mean, maybe this is possible. Maybe Augustine had 
Didache as a Latin source. There was a Latin version of Didache floating around around his time. We do have textual evidence of that. But I, I wonder if he actually had it, you know, on his desk or in his room while he was writing his commentary on the Psalms, or if he was just quoting this passage from the Didache from memory and ascribing it um, in terms of scripture or ascribing it in terms of this interpretive uh, non-canonical text. But, um, so, so it's interesting there. There's a bit of fluidity uh, that you see. Yeah, like it says, nevertheless, it has been said. Let your arm, you know. So it's, it seems that even the, the Didache document itself is, is quoting that. And it's not right. actually like, it's not actually creating that. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, but the, what's interesting is that's the only place where we have that saying recorded. Um, so who knows? It's, it's very interesting text to have in terms of referring back to something yet being the only one that we know of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Thank you for listening to the Patristics Podcast. Feel free to continue the discussion on our Facebook page and let us know if we made any errors. We'll correct them in our next recording.